I frequently encounter missionaries who are seeking to, in quotes, convert Christians of other traditions to their form of Christianity. Is this missional? Can we not, can we not support and encourage all forms of Christian practice and not judge them as non-Christian? Well, aren't we a varied lot, we Christians? I mean, we are so different in various ways. We have certain things that are deeply common. And it strikes to me that what we're engaged in when we're engaged in friendship between traditions is reciprocal gift giving. Um, And so, I mean, when we go and worship with the Pentecostals or when we go and worship with the Catholics, when we go and worship with the missionary Baptists, who are our local black uh, Baptist community nearest, they're the congregation we have most in common with locally, we are changed. They change us, they teach us, but at the same time we have things to offer. And so we're engaged in reciprocal gift giving, gift receiving. Now, we as Mennonites represent a tradition that was silenced essentially for 400 years. We think that we have something to offer that we learned through that period, something that that can be a gift to the, the wider Christian community. But during that period of being excluded and silenced, we also developed certain very um, tortoise-like shells that kept us from thinking that anybody else could be right about anything. And we have a great deal of ecclesial repenting to do. You know, so uh, I like the mix that's here. You know, we are varied. We represent differing strands of God's self-disclosure. We represent differing gifts that are to each other. And um, you often use the example of the choir, the Christian choir. Christian choir that has many voices. Mm -hmm. And what does it require? It means everyone needs to sing well. That means to know your part well, but also to listen. Anyone who's sung in choir knows that half of the job is listening to the others. You can't just sing your part. You're listening and singing at the same time. And then together, there's a balance that's, that's brought out and a beauty in the harmony. This person writes that they are in a church where the laity, untrained laity, are responsible for the leadership of worship. And they ask, how can worship that changes us occur? Because the untrained lay leaders do not know or value ritual and liturgy. (laughs) You have to buy my book. (laughs) 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 Or buy buy his books. (laughs) No, seriously. You know, we operate in our congregation by gift, right? By gift and by training, by discipline. And it's, it's only right that we should uh, not ask people who, who do not have the gift and do not have any experience and training to put them into roles that, that they aren't able to serve the congregation. Because certainly worship leading is serving the congregation in a very, very important way. One thing that I would add is that it seems to me that if we're right in what, we say, what we're saying, 
It is so important that all who lead worship have a theological vision for what worship is and for what worship under God's lordship can do in order to equip us to participate in God's mission. And this is not something that you pick up easily. It's not something that you learn in most uh, Christian radio stations. You know, it's not something that, that it must be learned, I think, in part by, by life experience, in part by, by training. And I would see one of the challenges for those of us who are pastors who have others who lead worship would be to do some teaching of the worship leaders in such a way that they have a vision of what God intends worship to, func- to, to, to be of a missional God and for the mission of God. Um, Sometimes people have a very narrow definition of what worship is. If worship is singing, mm-hmm. um, that's too narrow a, a definition. It, you know, it involves a lot more than mm-hmm. singing. And just to look at the words that we sing, if singing is very important, and think of that phrase that we quoted by this young Mennonite pastor, who do you sing that I am? If you look at the words that you've got in your songs, what vision do you get of Jesus? And how does this vision of Jesus compare to the vision offered to you by any of the four gospel writers? Um, And our experience is that often the songs offer exaltation, more than they involve humiliation and incarnation and suffering with, compassion with the people. And so it's, it's important to look at those texts. Um, again and again, I've been in churches that have sung the hymn from Philippians 2, you know, uh, that talks about the way in which Christ emptied himself took the form of a servant, and therefore God has highly exalted him, and at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we sing that. But we forget two things. The one is that humiliation and identification are as much a part of the picture as glorification. And second, we forget that Paul is saying, let this mind be among you. We are called as First Peter 2 puts it, to walk in his steps. We are called to enter into the sufferings of Christ. It's simply our vocation as believers. How do we sing about that? Is that worship? Is that saying something about the one who is worthy? I think maybe it is. And so, you know, we got some songwriters in this. Uh, room, but we also have people who choose among songs to sing. And if we simply have a vision of glorification without a vision of deep identification, um, I think we will end up by, what was the phrase that we used? Hyperventilated Christians? The danger of singing only about service and self-giving is that you end up with asphyxiation. You end up being stoics instead of being joyous participants in the mission of God. Balance is all, you know. Emptying glorification. They come together. One without the other is in trouble. This person asks... um, 
how can worship be formational in an urban setting where many people cannot or do not attend worship every Sunday? How is worship formational if our people aren't in regular weekly attendance and worship? Well, we talked about the importance of gathering, of actually being in face-to-face relationship in, in worship. And I think it's hard if you don't get together to, be, <laughs> to have worship that's formational. Um, you know, these days people say, well, technology can help us, you know, in those ways. We can pray over the phone. We can do these things that build community, that build um, mus- <laughs> spiritual muscles um, my mind goes back to the our rural backgrounds in which people could not easily come together every week, you know, and so they would come through the mud in their horse horses and carriages. Maybe in alternate weeks, maybe they didn't meet any more frequently than that, and yet the communities were being formed. And I'm just thinking, how how did that work? How did it work in an rural situation like that. What do you think? I think that the difficulties of getting together, especially in a situation where some of our members are poor and cannot choose when they work, you know, these are real problems. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we just recognize that and I think that um, I was thinking of two things that might happen that might might build this. The one would be an awareness of those who have gathered, of those who are not there, as if they are a part of the greater family that is present to God, even as they are working for Subway or, you know, Tim Hortons or, or whatever they're doing. Uh, so an awareness of them and a reminder of them that we are going to be praying for them as they are not with us, except in God's spirit. And there's also the, the whole opportunity of common prayer. This is one of the strengths of, of the daily office, the daily morning prayer and evening prayer. If we have a common uh, liturgy, a common piety, however simple it is, if we join in that together, if we have common scripture readings that we're doing, let's say, um, for some of us that would be the common lectionary, which is uh, is shared across many traditions, or it might be something that the local congregation would choose, uh, so that recognizing that we can't always come together. I think of a, a congregation we know in Paris, which has many immigrant people in it who cannot choose their hours of work. And uh, so this is one of the ways that they do it, through common prayer and knowing the others are praying those same scriptures uh, morning and evening and uh, common uh, prayer texts. Um, That can be very helpful, I think. I'm sorry if I didn't read your question, but the the hour is upon us, and I think we need to press on. It's 1.30. Thank you, Alan and Eleanor. Thank you. Breathe in and breathe out.
for a few moments so you don't get hyperventilated or, or asphyxiated. asphyxiated. Good. Um, one thing I forgot to mention to you folks, and that is we are recording all our sessions, and uh, they will we'll put them on the website as podcasts, so they will be available to you in an ongoing way, and you're also welcome to share them with other people. So I want you to know that that's going to be the case. Another resource we want to name to you is uh, uh, Donald Gertz has organized for Alan Hirsch to come soon. Uh, he's a leading missional thinker that's influenced many of us. I believe it's on the 23rd of November. Is it? 21st. Monday the 21st. And that'll be, I think it's in the afternoon and evening. Is that right? Monday the 21st. So Alan Hirsch will be here. And uh, this is part of the initiative. Many, you know, uh, many of us know Donald's ongoing initiatives for, on, what's your phrase? Uh, ongoing Conversations and missional leadership. That's what Donald is about, and uh, this initiative is certainly connected to that, as is uh, Alan Hirsch's. So, two things to be aware of two good resources. You ready? Have you breathed in and breathed out? Excellent. Well, thank you so much for the questions, and um, we're going to be here afterwards, and so we can talk more. I sense there were more questions than there were opportunities uh, for us to look at them. We have some pictures. And uh, should we look at them now? They will refer to things that are going to come up later. <clears throat> this is a Rembrandt uh, etching of Jesus at the well with the uh, woman in Samaria. Uh, it, wasn't in a, it wasn't in the synagogue. It wasn't in a building. It wasn't in her home. It was out at the village well. In a liminal place. Uh, a neutral place of meeting. Hmm. Hmm. The rather dubious disciples coming up. Not sure what Jesus was up to now. The next is a picture that Eleanor has given me. It's a Benedictine picture. Um... Notice, do you think she's telling me I should listen more? <laughs> but look at his eyes. I wonder what that means. Is there not only to be listening, but also a capacity to look in differing directions? I don't know. A picture that asks us questions. Hmm. This, uh -huh. is, this is our house in Elkhart, where we live, and I'm there with my, our granddaughter. This is our neighborhood. You will note our front door, and right next to it, do you see a light? And below the light is a, a sort of gray blur. This is what's on the blur. It's, it's a um, piece of slate uh, stone, and into it is etched the eighth day. Now, you might wonder what, what that means. A lot of people do. <laughs> we lived in England, and there there's a tradition of naming the house. And so when we came to live in Indiana, we decided we would name our house. And this was the name we chose. But what does the eighth day mean? <laughs> people come. The postman comes, and the FedEx man says, what? What, what is this about? <laughs> Guests come to the door. 
And that is, makes us happy because we like to answer the question. <laughs> the eighth day is the first day of the new creation. There were seven days of creation, and the eighth day is the day of resurrection, the day of the new creation, the day of hospitality, the day of joy. The day of new possibilities, the day of an open-ended horizon. You know, we can go on and on. It was very important in the early Christian centuries. Eight was a very important number. Baptistries were eight-sided. The eighth day is a very important idea. So it's something that came to us from the early Christians. Now, we live in a neighborhood, as you can tell. I mean, here's one house, but there are houses on both sides, and it looks rather posh, doesn't it? <laughs> posh. Well, I think it does. <laughs> we lived in less and less space the longer we lived in England. And in this house, we are living next to people who are largely relatively poor. This is an inner uh, suburban area, and uh, the inhabitants are about 30, well, a third Anglo, African American, and uh, Hispanic. And the people across the street from us are Hispanic, and they like to repair their cars outside, and they also like, as they repair their cars, to play music. Very loudly. Very loudly. Above the city ordinance level. And this Which has made problems feet. for us. Yeah. yeah, You're not supposed to be able to hear the sound beyond 35 feet. I was hearing the sound upstairs in, the study. in my study, yeah. and I listened to it for a couple of hours, and I just couldn't bear it anymore. It just really got to me. And so I came downstairs, and as I came downstairs, I found that Eleanor had been baking chocolate chip cookies. They were on a a cookie tin. They were just brought out of the oven. They smelled celestial. And I said, can I have those? And she gave them to me, and I walked across the street. <laughs> and I went to the men who were working on their cars, and I said, would you like a cookie? <laughs> and the children grabbed them, and the adults reached out lest the kids get them all. and. What happened was it started building relationships. This was early in our time there with but our neighbors. You did ask them to turn the music down. Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> After two bites, they turned it way down. But uh, a relationship built, which has led then to the neighborhood children coming to our house to bake cookies. And while the cookies are baking, then I play piano and they dance and they... They love music, and so we do this together. Yeah. And they, the neighbors have become friends. And kids have come to Sunday school at our church, and to Bible school, and relationships are being built. And we just saw this as uh, something liminal. You know, we were in a place that we couldn't control. It required, you know, somebody who had just made chocolate chip cookies. And, but to us, it was so encouraging and so happy. So that's just a picture out of our life. We know all those kids well. The home in post-Christendom is going to become more and more important, we believe. Archbishop Rowan Williams has talked about a mixed economy church, a church in which there will be inherited ways of being Christian and emerging ways of being Christian. The mixed economy will have churches that meet in church buildings, and it will have churches that meet in domestic buildings, in homes. 
in differing ways. And the early pictures of early Christian at worship are often pictures of people in homes. So this, this is one. This is from the catacomb. Mm-hmm. It's called the breaking of bread. See the person on the left? Breaking bread. Is it Eucharistic? Probably. Another example. Seven loaves of bread, seven people. Hmm. Christians eating and drinking together in a domestic setting. And meeting in a setting like this. A house. A house where there is an assembly room over there on the left, people gathered, and a baptistry over on the right. This is in Iraq. Hmm. And this is what it might have looked like in that early Christian church when they were exchanging the kiss of peace. An artist from Canada drew that one. Now, in the fourth century, the church went public. The church became monumental. And this is one of the churches we love most. It's the Church of Santa Sabina in Rome. It's the head of the worldwide Dominican order. And you will note, see that area that is enclosed? That's called the scola. It's the area around which there is a fence and only priests, only those who are ordained can go inside. And so you see the growing role of fences separating clergy from laity. In the homes, there was no such separation. But when you go into large buildings, there often is. And the Eucharist becomes vastly grander. Here is Jesus serving both the bread and wine in Syria in the 500s. And it becomes very large and imposing. And the communion plate becomes beautiful. The previous was a paten on which the bread came. This, of course, is the chalice. But today, you know, we're, the church is going home again. This is a church in East London drawn by somebody who is... She's a young woman who has just finished college, and she went over and did a time of service there. And she took a photograph, and later, as an artist, she put this into an etching and has done this beautiful evocation of worship at table. This is just a reunion of our Oxford group. We called it group. Every Thursday night for five years, we met... 13 of us, including three children, we would eat, we would have a liturgy at table, and then we would share life, both during the meal and afterwards. We would discern, we would share what is going on. So here we were having fun, and um, simply put it there, to record that house churches are emerging in new ways, and they cause all kinds of uncertainties and difficulties because what kind of controls are there? How do you make sure that you avoid against heresy or whatever? But at the same time, certain things that the New Testament definitely calls about, calls us to, which is uh, the one another kinds of passages, loving one another, listening to one another, serving one another, happens so much when you look at the other person's face as opposed to the back of the other person's head. And here are two Anglicans in Wolverhampton in England who are starting a new church in their home, Chris and Catherine Horton. They have a biggish house. Property is cheap in Wolverhampton. 
And there they are. And here is the room in which their table church meets. We weren't there for a meeting of the table church, but Ellie was playing the piano over there, Chris and Catherine at table. And we could get a feel of what it was like. There's something new that's emerging in Britain, but I'm sure it's happening here just as much. It's happening in Leeds in England. Here's our friend Bill. Bill and his wife, Allie, have lived in Chapeltown, this extremely deprived area of Leeds. They're Baptists. They've lived there for 35 years. And they've been committed to the locality, committed to it as it's ethnically changed, committed to helping peace to break out in Chapeltown. And they've lived there as members of the local Baptist church. And this is their kitchen. This is a holy place. <laughs> place of hospitality, of love, prayer. Beautiful. People gather people of differing races. They meet in their home. They meet in the church too. The mixed economy church doesn't force you to choose. What it opens up is new possibilities of being Christian. You don't need to have a big building. You don't need to have a basilica to be a Christian. And this is a picture of our church. Our church building is sort of like a fortress. It's that brick building in the back. And so uh, that's a bit of a liability for us. But the church also owns the house in the foreground, the blue house. And uh, yes, you can see the, the ground around the house has been transformed into an urban garden. And the demonstration that, you know, God can bring vegetables to bear right here in our urban spaces in the inner city. And it has been absolutely amazing. People come by and look at the pumpkins and the corn, and it is just wonderful. See the, the sunflowers there as well. Here's the back of the house. The back, yeah. And you will note that um, the garden is big, but also through that door in the back of the house on Wednesday evenings, up to 50 people come to share a meal. There's a, a kind of enclosed lawn there, a little place in the middle, and they put tables out there and anybody from the neighborhood comes and they eat together uh, and it carries on I think they had 50 people yeah. 35 40 people through the winter come yeah. on Wednesday evenings it's utterly amazing how some people will go there and won't ever come to church on the other hand that that building is a kind of front porch to our church it's it's that liminal space that halfway place mm -hmm. where the neighborhood can meet with uh, members of the church mm -hmm. And so then people do come to church, and sometimes this causes problems. Praise God. <laughs> you know. There's chocolate on the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> right. And finally, when they come in, what do they see? And, you know, on the right Sunday, they might see a baptism. Um, this is a midwife's birthing tub. <laughs> Or they might, if they come, alas, only once a month, see something like this. This is our communion in which people come and gather around the table. Yeah. Arthur's there. Well, let me see. Let me see. Oh, yes, I see. So at any rate, we need to think then, when the outsiders come in, what do they see? <clears throat> what is it that they intuit? And so uh, we hope that they will an 
see something that anticipates that. We hope they will see something that somehow is an anticipation of the peaceable kingdom, something that gives people hope mm -hmm. that God is, a re is real, alive, mm -hmm. at work, gracious mm -hmm. to them. One thing that's happening now, we mentioned the uh, Hispanics that are in our neighborhood, and you may know that there is a lot of tension in our culture about uh, immigrants and whether they're documented or not. But we have a number of, of people coming into our worship services now, and what they say is, we feel safe here. We feel safe here. Not, not like in the grocery, not like driving down the road, but here we feel safe. So that's something of the ethos. And it's a, it's a place of wholeness which we can offer. We're interested in what it, why would outsiders want to come? We have talked about attraction. We also very deeply believe in invitation. It's not you ought to come to church. It's not you are somehow, you know, we expect you to come to our church, but rather we give testimony. We say, I cannot make it without worship. And this is in a conversation in which it's going back and forth two ways. It's wonderful. It's a sine qua non for me. There are plenty of examples of people who have a deep longing for God, mm -hmm. and they have a sense that the God is there. It's, that's the story of Teze, isn't it? The young people that flood to that place. Why? Because the rumor is out. God is there. And there is that longing, Dorothy Day's experience. We could tell stories in which people have come with this longing for God. People come because something unsettling has happened. Princess Diana has died. Or that there, was huge in Britain. Or there's been a hurricane or a flood or a tornado and people are deeply distressed. And they, a pandemic. They yeah. Mm -hmm. People may be unsettled. People need help. People come with all kinds of needs. How are we going to listen to them? How are we going to open ourselves to what it really is that is driving them towards this place where God is said to be? And we have found, especially from the Pentecostals and from the Missionary Baptists, that they respond to people's needs more effectively, vastly, than we do. We have prayer after the service that is offered to people. But we are a bit more diffident about this than our Missionary Baptist friends. We were in a church in, it was a brethren, wasn't it? A brethren church in uh, Tasmania. And a very formal kind of church. You know, the sermon, everybody was dressed up and sermon and formal. But it was different because the worship leader, there was a man and a woman together, and they were all dressed up in... They were bikers. Yeah, leather and medals and yeah. tattoos. Yeah. And, and Plymouth were, Brethren Church. Here were all these plain people, and these people were the worship leaders. And so the man said... Is your life in a mess? You know, has, has your wife left you? You don't have any food for the kids? And you know, went on like, <laughs> he said, you've come to the right place because we're going to pray for you here. And all around the edges of this worship service, people were praying for people. So you had the sense that what was going on in the middle was kind of like incidental or background to the real thing, which was going on all around the edges.
and it was a wonderful lesson to us. It was beautiful, absolutely. The, the kind of uh, speaking into the longing and need of the people. Our world there. is full of people who are so deeply uh, disoriented and in despair. Mm -hmm. And if we are a place where everything is neat, where everything is tidy, where everything is tied up, and there's no room for this raggedness. Um, well, I think we need to repent. We need to change. We need to find ways of enabling people's cries to come out and to be heard and to be then offered together to God. We have a Baptist friend in, in Oxford who their church is right next to a big shopping mall. Mm -hmm. And so he, he put a box. It's like putting a, a bird... <laughs> a sort of birdhouse out. He put a box out there and said, prayer requests with a slot in it. He didn't know what would happen. That box was full. People going to shop. Prayer. Oh, you know, and they put... And that began a wonderful contact with the community. People want to be prayed for. <laughs> and that's something that we can offer. It's beautiful. Now, outsiders come to our services. And what do they sense? Our desire is that they would sense three things. One is they were, that they sense that they are glimpsing the world as it is meant to be. That there is something about our life together that is a, a kind of um, embodied expression of God's desire for kingdom life now. God's reign embodied, God's reign incarnate. God's justice, peace, and joy that is evident. Creation healed. And further, our desire is that they detect in our midst hope. They detect that God is real and God is holding out an open possibility for their future and for the future of the creation that God loves so much. So a glimpse of the world as it is meant to be, fully human, fully in the presence of God, and with this distinctive quality of hope. And finally, we desire that they believe that they could be at home here, that they could belong here, that they would find peoplehood here. Now. We have said that as we worship in the presence of the outsiders, the outsiders will see what we do. And so we believe that everything that we do is not done for the sake of the outsiders, done for the sake of God. It is done in such a way that God is going to form us. But people are watching. People These people are watching. are watching. We are worshiping in the presence of the watching world. So everything that we do, every practice, every action of worship is done in awareness that people are looking at this and it is necessary that it somehow communicate. It may not communicate immediately. Ritual mm -hmm. actions never do immediately. They often need to be explained. But something get across in what we're doing. So the key word there is awareness. We worship aware of the watching people, the, the guests, the outsiders. And we are aware that the outsiders will not only watch, but they will intuit 
what is present as they enter our worship So we're space. talking here about the ethos of the church, the style, the, sen- the sense of priority, the mood, the intangible things that they sense about the community as they're coming in. Does the gathered community seem to be at home? Do they seem to be themselves? Do they seem relaxed? Is this a culture of grace? Is it okay to make mistakes? I mean, if someone sings the wrong note or makes a mistake, you know, what? how is that received? This is the kind of thing people notice. Is this a culture in which risk is possible, in which failure is something that is willing to be entertained? How is power exercised? Does one person or certain people dominate the scene? Is there room for various voices to speak? What is the relation of these people to beauty, to color and light, to the space in which they worship? What is the relationship between these people and meals? Does sharing food seem important? Is the Eucharist central, the communion central to their life? And most of all, it, is, it comes back to this question, could I be at home here? Could these people be my people? And you get that feeling tone, that ethos that communicates as strongly as the actual actions. And then the other thing that's really important is what do people intuit about the God these people worship? Who is the God that they worship? What kind of God is this? Am I drawn to that God? Oh. Is that God, Uncle George, who is going to put me in the furnace if I don't show up every week? Whose story was that? Gerard Hughes. Gerard Hughes. Yeah. Uh, Jesuit. Yeah. yeah. Um, we don't have time to talk about that. We just say people will intuit certain things about the nature of God by the way that we pray and worship. And then do we welcome them? Hmm. And welcome can be as much giving people space as being hearty and (laughs) embracing. It can mean giving them the security of liturgy that gives them protection from inappropriate uh, (laughs) um, intimacy. Um, Now, this is a huge subject to think about. And we've got, according to Arthur, two more minutes. And so we are... Uh, about to conclude, but let us turn to the five. Okay, four. <laughs> we'll return to this dynamic cycle, which has been handed out to you. Oh, Kevin is going to hand it out. As it goes out, we're going to give you a quote from a sociologist of religion at the University of Birmingham, who is somebody who has studied Christian worship across the centuries. He has studied many global worship traditions. And this is what he says. In his dream, if the meal and the spirit could ever be successfully reunited, then Christian worship could be launched again in a new round of renewal. You see what he's saying, the meal and the spirit. If the Eucharist and the freedom of spirit. If form and freedom could be reunited, Uh then Christian worship could be launched again in a new round of renewal. If that spectrum 
that goes from one to the other could be drawn together so the ends are like in a horseshoe the whole thing is a horseshoe that is like a table in itself now what you have just received from Kevin is our picture that we have done as a means of helping us to understand how worship and mission are integrated in the lives of Christians in the Christian community it's in two halves the left and the right and in the middle of this diagram it says God's mission and this is the love of God the heart of God out of which the energy is flowing the reconciling power of God leading towards new creation leading towards the great banquet this is who God is God's mission is radiating out from there is spiraling out from there so that love is infusing all of the elements of this diagram at the bottom of the page we start at six o'clock we are going to go into the assembly so these are actions that we take as we assemble together we baptize we give testimony we make peace we tell God's story we preach sermons we listen to scripture we celebrate the Lord's Supper we gather we praise we pray we welcome people these are actions that we take as we worship but at the same time God is also active in our worship God is healing giving hope God is shaping individuals God is building the community of faith God is feeding us and ministering to our needs God is answering prayer God is listening God is sending God is sending us and so God is at work as we gather God is at work forming us then to be people who are going to be empowered by the gospel of peace and the motive clause see that up at the top the gospel of peace being that which we wear on our feet that which is something that expresses to us the central character of the Lord whom we worship and the motive clause is freely we have received freely give so we go out with a sense of spirit of, uh, ge of generosity and forgiveness you know in John 20 Jesus says the first thing he talks about is forgiveness it's extremely important that's the gift of God to the world so we go out in the spirit of the, the motive clause and we notice God at work we become alert to opposition we know that there is greed and oppression and violence out there we, we recognize that but we will seek to do more interesting things things that are surprising things that others haven't thought about we meet others in liminal spaces in the in the coffee shop in the urban garden and we invite other people into our life but into the life of our world as well our, our worship and at the same time we recognize that God is active God is in the world and what is God doing God we, is enabling enemies to talk we see it and we name it God is enabling surprising truthfulness we notice that and we call it by its name God is enabling sharing without accumulation to happen God is enabling understanding without rejection what a surprise God is in it God is enabling the care for creation and the justice for the poor God is active God is going ahead of us and so we name what God is doing in the world we praise God for that action in the world and then we go back towards worship where we will give testimony to what we have noticed but we also may well bring along with us people that we have invited to come and see so here in this picture we have this dynamic cycle this movement of the assembly gathering together being enriched by God's presence and action in our lives 
being sent out into the, uh, the world of our neighborhood, of our work, and finding God is already there ahead of us, drawing us into, into mission, God's mission. And so this is on. what we call breathing in and breathing out. And I think with that, <laughs> we, we will, will say thank we you. Will say. <laughs>